Today we look at Ruth chapter 4. We're finishing a four-part sermon series through the book of Ruth here. Like a lot of you, I uh, enjoy movies, and I've been particularly happy that in the last several years there has been a, a glut of superhero movies that have come out. You thought I was going to talk about Star Wars, right? <laughs> That's coming. Um, yeah, uh, I, I love superhero movies. I, I love the fact they've taken all these old comic book characters from the last century, you know, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Captain America, the Fantastic Four, and all these different characters, and, and they've been putting them into the big screen. And, you know, some of the movies are flops, but a lot of them are really entertaining, and uh, apparently it's not just nerds and geeks like me who enjoy these movies because, the, the, you know, they tend to just be these blockbuster, multi-million dollar things that make all kinds of money in the United States and even globally so, so that people all over the world, you know, have this kind of common experience of these stories of superheroes, which raises the question, why is it that we love superhero stories or why do people love them in case you don't love them yourself? And this is my little theory. I have a little theory. My theory is that people love superheroes because superheroes get stuff done. They take action in a messed up world and they fix stuff that no one else can fix. They go and they help people who no one else seems to be able to help and they take care of the bad people that no one else seems to be able to take care of. And, you know, we, we just live in this world that's it's so broken and so messed up, and we just are like, why won't someone just do something, you know? And everyone talks and complains and, you know, talk radio and pundits on TV, and everyone's posting their opinions about everything. But, you know, superheroes, they don't just talk, they do something about it. And we look to our leaders, and, and it seems sometimes, you know, maybe this is overly cynical, but it seems sometimes leaders are just concerned about, you know, protecting their jobs or protecting their reelection campaigns. And, and instead of really sacrificing or risking to help fix things that need to be fixed that are really affecting real people who are struggling. And so it's, it's, it's difficult. But then come the superheroes, right? And they don't care about political correctness. Superheroes don't care about dumb laws. You know, superheroes can't be bribed. Superheroes can't be lobbied. They don't care. They know what's right, and they use their superpowers to go do it. And so when you go watch a superhero movie, it's like, for two hours, you can enter a fantasy world where something good gets accomplished. Maybe that's why I like this book of Ruth, too. There's some heroes in Ruth. Not superheroes. Maybe that's why Ruth's even cooler. They're just regular people, these heroes. But they do some extraordinary things. They're heroes who see the needs of the weak and the helpless, and they do something. And today we look at the heroic act of a man named Boaz. If you look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, we read today of what Boaz does to to be a hero, or to use biblical language, to redeem, to redeem two helpless widows to whom he was related. 
But before we dig into Ruth one, uh, Ruth chapter four, let me just quickly give you a, a quick overview of the book of Ruth because I recognize there may be some folks here who are new today. Maybe you came with family, and we're we're really glad that you're here with us uh, this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent. So let me, for your sake, let me give you uh, a quick, you know, trailers of the previous three chapters. So um, the book of Ruth is about a woman named Naomi. Um, so. <laughs> She's this, she's this woman who's in Bethlehem. You all know Bethlehem. That's where, you know, the Christmas story happens. But a thousand years before Jesus. And, and she's this woman, and there's a famine. And so she leaves with her family out of Bethlehem. They go to a foreign country uh, where, where pagans live, and they're away from Israel. It's bad. And, and while she's there, her husband dies, and then her two sons die. And now she has no sons, and her sons get married, but they don't have any kids, so there's no grandchildren. So all of a sudden, this woman is bereft of everything. It's a terrible story. The book of Ruth is super depressing in chapter one. But then the rest of the story of Ruth is this kind of slow recovery that God brings in her life. So it starts in chapter one, where God brings her this amazing daughter-in-law named, now you can say it, Ruth. Okay. So that's where Ruth fits in. So Ruth is this wonderful pagan daughter-in-law who says, you know what? My old country's gone. I'm going to be an Israelite. My family, gone. You're going to be my family. The gods I worshiped before, gone. I'm going to worship the God of Israel. And she pledges herself. And then they, in chapter 2, they go back to Bethlehem, and, and things start getting a little bit better. Uh, they, uh, they find food, and one of their relatives, Boaz, begins to provide for them. So these two widows, uh, Naomi and her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, whose husband died, um, these two are now who normally would be in a very financially precarious position as two women without any other relatives in an agrarian, ancient agrarian culture. Uh, suddenly they, they find this protector, Boaz, who's feeding them and giving them grain, and he's related to Naomi. And then in chapter 3, it gets a little bit better because now Ruth goes, and if you were here last Sunday, we studied this, Ruth goes to Boaz at night, and she says, will you marry me? The woman proposes to the guy. But, but more than just marry me, she's saying, like, would you become my protector? Would you become my hero? Would you save me and Naomi from financial catastrophe? And so Boaz says, I'll do it. And I love at the end of chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 18. This is Naomi's reaction to Ruth. She says this to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled today. Superhero. I'm not going to rest. We're going to get this done today. You know, Boaz just mans up, and he's like, we're going to fix this. One way or the other, this is going to get settled and so we see his heroic actions then in chapter 4. So now let's pick up the story. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. And when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit down. And they did so. So, so the story starts out at the town gate. And the town gate in ancient cities was like the courthouse or town hall today. So you would go to do official business or conduct official matters. You would go to town hall, city hall, or you might go to the courthouse to get official 
uh, legal work done. And, and in those days, you, there wasn't a town hall, there wasn't that. You would go to the town gate. That's where it all happened. Uh, town gates were often big spaces. It was the public square. So, so what we see here is there's a, a kind of formal legal proceeding, a, a, a formal uh, transactional proceeding taking place. And so Boaz is there. He finds this other guy, this kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about him in a minute. He gets 10 elders, so he's getting the official representatives of the town to come. You know, hey, elders, you got to come here. We're going to conduct some official town business right here. So what's the business? What do they do? We'll look at verse 3. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband who died. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, let me tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. What in the world is going on in those verses? There's obviously something taking place. There's Naomi selling land, and the guys in, in uh, Boaz is saying to this kinsman redeemer, you've got first dibs on buying it back, and if you don't do it, I'll do it. Do you want to do it? You know, what's, what's taking place here? What, what is this big drama about? Well, to really appreciate chapter 4, you've got to know two things about the ancient culture back then that is different from the way we do things today. But when you know these historical facts, it's like the story just comes to life, and you're like, oh, I see what's going on. So here's the first thing. You've got to know how land worked back then. It wasn't like today. Today, anyone can buy and sell any piece of property. If you've got the money and someone wants to sell it to you, you can buy it. Back then, in ancient Israel, all of the land belonged to specific families forever in perpetuity. So when the Israelites came into the promised land, if you guys know the story, and, and they conquered the promised land that God gave them, do you remember what happened after they conquered the promised land? They divided it up among the 12 tribes. Every one of the 12 tribes of Israel got a piece of land. It didn't stop there. Then the tribal lands were subdivided into clans and groups, and the clans were divided into subfamilies until finally, when all the dust settled... Every single Israelite family that came into the promised land had some piece of earth that was their family's land. It's pretty cool. Like everyone had a piece of land. Everyone in Israel belonged somewhere. And so from then on, that piece of land would be their family property. In fact, every 50 years in Israel, there was something called, do you guys, do you guys know this? The year of Jubilee. Have you heard about the year of Jubilee? So every 50 years in Israel, twice a century, there was a full... Uh, real estate reset throughout the whole country was supposed to be. And all the land went back to its original family members. So like every 50 years, they, they wiped the hard drive and, and City Hall got completely rearranged and, and everyone got to go back and take possession of their ancestral lands, no matter who it might have been sold to in the interim. So what's happening here is that there's an Israelite man, Elimelech, who is Naomi's deceased husband, who's died. And normally, his piece of family land would go to who? His sons. But they're dead. So then it would go to who? The grandsons, who don't exist. So all of a sudden, you now have a piece of family land with nobody in the family line to take the land. And so now, there's a piece of land that, that's just, there's a family that's become extinct in Israel. 
they no longer exist. Um, and so now this land has to go somewhere. Naomi has to sell it because she needs money. And as a single elderly widow, there's no way she can farm this land uh, even with Ruth's help. And so she's going to sell it. So, so what they would do then is that someone would have an opportunity to buy this land. And that brings in the second concept, which is this phrase that we've seen there in verse 2, a kinsman redeemer. Do you see that? Verse 1. Verse 3, the kinsman redeemer. So a kinsman redeemer was a kinsman. In other words, someone who is related to you. And he was a redeemer. He was someone who had a kind of obligation or opportunity to to make sure that, that his broader extended family was taken care of. So in this case... It, it went like this. Hey, look, Naomi's land is about to go away forever. It's about to become extinct. How about you, the, the closest family member, you kinsman redeemer, you have the first right, the right of first refusal, to buy that land so that it then becomes part of, stays within your clan. It stays close, right? So even though that family has died out, at least you, the closest relative, can then take the land so it won't get bought up by some other clown, you know? It's going to stay at least closer even if the family has died. So that's what it is. So those are the two concepts. And so Boaz says, hey, you're the next in line. You're the closest relative by however they reckoned that back then. He goes, do you want to buy it? Verse 4, the guy says, I'll redeem it. Kind of a no-brainer, right? In, in, a land where, in a place where land was permanently held, ultimately, the only way you could ever expand your family's permanent land holdings would be in this situation where someone else's family line died out and you were the closest relative. So this is like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. We can buy that land and not just buy it for a while till the year of Jubilee, but that would permanently become part of our family's holdings? Yeah. <laughs> No-brainer. I'll do it. And then Boaz pulls his trick, verse 5. Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Oh, uh, did I mention here on page 5, paragraph 3, subpoint 2, did you see this? Just want to point this out, that um, you also have to marry Ruth if you buy this land. Now again, that just got to sound so weird to modern people, doesn't it? Like, you know... Well, I'd love to buy this house. Any contingencies? No, no contingencies. Oh, there's this one. You've got to marry the wife of the former owner if you want to buy this house on Main Street. Like, what? <laughs> but again, a different culture, different world. Uh, not a modern world where, where a woman can live independently. In a world like that, it w- it's not a sexist comment. It's just how it was back then to survive in a very difficult world. And so this was... This, there's this Ruth. And so he says, look, you've got to take care of this family too. In other words, a kinsman redeemer not only had an opportunity and a right to, to buy land, that was the only one thing he protected, he was also supposed to take care of, of family lineage. So Elimelech is dead and his sons are dead. And now Elimelech's name is going to die out. Ah, but one of his son's wife is still alive. So now you also have to marry her so that if you have a son, that son that would then be kind of like put plugged back into Elimelech's line, and, and so Elimelech's line would continue. You would sort of have a, a son by proxy for 
Elimelech, and he would then take over that property so that Elimelech's line would no longer die out in Israel, but it would continue, which is, again, it sounds so foreign to us, but it was about your family lineage and every Israelite having a name that continued in Israel. And so he says, hey, you got to redeem Ruth, and that way, obviously, if you have a son, that son is then going to get the property that you're buying so that Elimelech's story continues. At this point, though, verse 6, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it (laughs) because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So for whatever reason, marrying Ruth would have potentially endangered his own land holdings. We don't know why. The story doesn't fill in the details. Presumably back then they would have read it and been like, oh, yeah, that's probably what happened. Like We're like, I don't know. We don't know the story. We don't know as much about the historical background. It's possible. Who knows? Maybe it's the case that this guy was unmarried. And so maybe he's a young guy, and he marries this Ruth, and then they have a son. And then guess what? That son now, because he's his kid too, might get the, his land holdings. And so now he could potentially lose his own land to this kid who's going to inherit the other land. And so there's just something like that's happening where he's like, whoa, 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 this is too risky. I don't want to put my own family inheritance at risk. And so he goes, I'm out. Not going to do it. Hey, Boaz, you're next in line. You want it? It's all yours, bro. You take it. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method for legalizing transactions in Israel. (laughs) You know, here's my sandal. Could put this in your filing cabinet. Uh, you know, one guy's walking away without a shoe. The other guy's got a shoe. And, you know, it's, right? This is before the interwebs. This is how you did business. So, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a strange kind of funny thing. So verse 8, the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Sandals, you know, the feet in the ancient world were often a symbol for authority and power there's this thing that uh, God says to Joshua, everywhere you place your feet, I shall give you. Ancient kings, when they conquered another king, they'd make them lay on the ground, and then they'd put their foot on the neck. You know, so, so the foot was kind of like a symbol of, of having authority over something. Even like in, in modern cultures, uh, you know, I'm, I'm studying up on like, you know, Arab culture as I'm planning to move over to the Middle East. And, you know, it's like, hey, when you're sitting with Arab people, don't, don't go like this and show them the sole of your foot. It's an insult. You know, because, because the foot is sort of like, you know, your, your control and your power, and that's an insult to show them the sole of your shoe. So don't do that. So I'm like, oh, all these rules i got to learn so I don't start an international crisis <laughs> accidentally. So something like that's happening here. There's some kind of symbolism of the shoe and the foot. But anyway, the point is, it's a legal transaction. He says, look, I'm giving you the right to redeem. I'm passing it. I'm giving it to you. So verse 9, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. That was Elimelech's two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's wife, as my wife. Here's why. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So if any kids, the first son that Ruth and Boaz have is going to inherit and continue the property in the name of Elimelech so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses 
Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. It's legal, it's formal, it's official. And so Boaz, you know, he's this great hero. You know, he, he didn't need to do this. We know from the story Boaz is well off. He's doing fine. There's no, Boaz doesn't need this extra land. He doesn't need this extra risk. Who knows what, what Ruth might have endangered in his own family holdings. But he does it anyway because he's the hero. <laughs> he sees what needs to be done. He, take action. he takes action. He formulates a plan. And at potential personal risk, he redeems and saves these widows. It's such a beautiful moment. In one fell swoop, Boaz has rescued Naomi, rescued Ruth, and potentially rescued the the name of Elimelech from extinction within the land of Israel. Boaz is the redeemer. This is a great picture of redemption. You know, redemption, redeemer, it's a word we kind of use in church. It's so, you know, we sing about redeeming in songs, and it's kind of churchy language, right? It's not really a word you use too much. I mean, I guess you redeem coupons. But, you know, besides that, like, when, when do we use the word redemption in our normal daily lives, right? It's kind of a biblical word. But it's a really rich word. And, and really the heart of redemption is the idea of somebody in need who can't help themselves somehow being rescued or, or salvaged by somebody who has resources and ability. So, you know, God redeemed the Israelites out of slavery. In the ancient world, someone might be a slave, and you would pay the price for their manumission, and then that person would become free, and then you'd say, hey, you're not my slave. You just go be free now. You've redeemed the slave. So, So in redemption, you need somebody who's in real need who can't fix their problem, and then you've got someone who doesn't need to do it, but steps in, often a great personal cost, to, to rescue and help that person who's in need. That's redemption. Those are the basic dynamics of it. It's such a beautiful picture of it here. And not only does it help us understand redemption, I, I just find as I read this, it's such a beautiful uh, visual, I think, to help us understand our own redemption in Christ. We have a great kinsman redeemer, and his name is Jesus. And, and we think about how Jesus is our Redeemer, but like, what does that really mean? And, and I think when you compare some of the elements of the redemption of Boaz, of Naomi and Ruth, with the, with the redemption that Jesus gave to us, it, it just kind of brings nuance and color and richness to our own redemption that Jesus has brought. I mean, let's just compare the two. Let's compare the redemption that Boaz brought and the redemption that Jesus brought. So in both cases, you have a needy party. In Boaz's case, it was Naomi and Ruth, right? They, they couldn't help themselves. They're widows, really bad situation, catastrophic situation. In, our, in, in the case of Jesus, who's the needy party? It's us. Every single one of us are in need of a Savior. Every single one of us is a sinner. None of us can measure up to what God's standards are. None of us is good enough, spiritual enough. None of us volunteers enough hours at the school. None of us is, you know, has a small enough carbon footprint. None of us has rescued enough dogs. None of us has done enough whatever the good deeds are. No one is as, as holy as God's requirement. None of us have loved God with our whole heart and loved our neighbor as ourself. And, and you know, we are all sinful people. And none of us can earn God's favor with our lives. And, and the first step of redemption is you've got to own that. If you haven't owned that yet, 
and you're still like, ah, I'm, I'm okay. Like, dude, you're not okay. <laughs> you need a Savior. But you will never find it, and you'll never truly know the Lord until you can come to that place of being like, I'm not okay. You know, I'm not okay. I need a Redeemer. I, I can't have eternal life, or, or I can't have a right relationship with God without help. In both cases, a Redeemer takes action. In Boaz's story, Boaz takes action, right? He's like, don't worry, don't worry, little Missy, I'm going to fix this, you know, kind of like a cowboy sort of movie. And uh, he, he just takes action, and he calls the council, and he comes up with a plan, and he saves Naomi, and he saves Ruth. This guy does what's needed. And the same thing in our redemption in Christ. Jesus Christ does what's needed. He doesn't just hang back, but Jesus, you know, the Son of God is sent from, from heaven to earth, and he takes on flesh. I mean, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? That God the Son became a human being. He became our kinsman redeemer. He's God, so he can redeem us, but he's human. He's our kinsman. He, he became our kin. He has flesh. You know, he's not just some, some deity up in the sky. Like he walked, he, he became one of us. He's our kinsman redeemer. And he came after us and he sought us all the way to the cross. In both cases, a heavy price was paid. Boaz took great risks and potentially risking his own inheritance, uh, but he didn't care. He paid the price to rescue these women. And in the, the case of Jesus, a great cr- price was paid. Jesus on the cross, he gave up his life for our salvation. We're redeemed and purchased at the highest possible price. The blood of the Son of God shed for us. And in both cases, there's a, a, a public legal aspect to it. Do you notice that? So in Boaz's case, this is, you know, chapter 4 is very public. Chapter 3, very private. Secret meeting in the middle of the night, you know, shh, don't tell anyone I'm here, but would you marry me? Okay, shh, go ahead, go back. Just don't tell anyone you were here, right? Chapter four, very public. This is a legal transaction. We're here at the gate. There's the kinsmen come here. There's the elders. Townspeople gather around. People can come to the courthouse and watch the proceedings. It's a very legal, formal process. And so it was when Christ died for us. He didn't do it as some private, personal act of secret suffering. It was done publicly. It was done legally. A great business was transacted on the cross. Jesus Christ stood formally before the courts, and they accused him of crimes that he was innocent of, but that's why he was there, to pay for other people's crimes, not his own, to pay for our sins. And there, on, there, Jesus stood publicly. He was humiliated publicly. He was beaten and questioned and spat upon publicly. And then he carried his cross down Main Street, out the gate where everybody could see it. And then they put that cross in the ground and they crucified him, not in secret, but in public. There he was along the main road, Naked and crucified for all the world, walking down the road. It's, it's, it's like, you know, back then when they crucified people, it, if they did it today, they'd do it along I-93, where everyone could see it. It was public. And so all the people could see Jesus on the cross. They could see the sign above his head written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. So no matter what language you read, you could read it. 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But it was not only public before the world and before all the citizens of Jerusalem. Jesus' crucifixion was public and formal before God in heaven. He was crucified outdoors. It's as if all of heaven and all of the spiritual forces of the universe and God himself could look down and see that, yes, indeed, a great price was being paid to redeem a people. So that when Jesus finally uttered those words, his last words on the cross, it is finished. He didn't just mean, oh, thank goodness, this painful crucifixion's over. What he meant was, I have paid the redemption price in full. It's done. There's nothing else to do. I have done the redeeming work. That's why it's so preposterous to think that we have to, to do something to get to heaven. Like, Christ has done the work. It's paid in full. It's done. Praise the Lord for a great redemption in Christ so that all heaven and all of history and all of the universe can know that God's eternal demands of justice have been met It is legal. It is done. It is finished. Christ has bought us. Then the rest of the chapter shows what happens as a result of redemption. Because Christ buying us and Boaz buying the field and purchasing Ruth in a sense, that's just the beginning There's all these wonderful benefits that come out of redemption. Redemption, you you know, redemption is like an explosion on a mountainside, and then all this avalanche of good things just collapses and and cascades down from an act of redemption. What, What happens as a result of redemption? Well, let me just finish the chapter with you. We'll go quick here. But I just want to quickly point out four results of redemption, four things that have happened in the world as a result of redemption, both in Boaz's story and in the story of Christ, our great kinsman redeemer. Result number one, redemption results in praise to the redeemer. Praise to the redeemer. Look at verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. We'll come back to that in a minute. But here's what they say to Boaz. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. So, so the, the people at the gate recognized this wasn't your average ordinary land transaction. They, they get it. They're like, this wasn't just a land sale. This was a heroic act, a, a, a very bold and courageous and self-sacrificial act that Boaz did. He didn't have to do this, but he's doing it because he's a, a man of God. And so they say, Boaz, we pray. It's not just like, okay, land sale done. Can we go back to work now? But they're like, wow, may you become very famous. May your act of redemption be talked about and may people know about it. Redemption, the most important thing that happens as a result of redemption is praise for the Redeemer. And so it is with Christ. Christ has redeemed us. So what? Here's the number one so what. We should be filled up with praise for the Redeemer. You know, this church 
should always be a temple of praise for Jesus Christ. I was um, at the uh, Christmas coffee house, not this Saturday, but the Saturday before. We had a Christmas coffee house here, and it was just so great. You know, I'm, do- I'm doing all my, you know, all my lasts, right? It's my last coffee house. It's like my last, you know, Advent here with you, and cr- my last Christmas Eve, and you know, which is all very emotionally upsetting. So I'm trying to repress all my emotions and just stuff them down as deep as I can. But um, it's, so, uh, yeah, I was at this coffee house, but, but I just was, you know, just sitting there listening to these musicians and all of their different types of music, very different styles, but all of them praising Christ. And then just listening to the, the congregation around me and all the people in the room, you know, you could, just, you could hear, the, hear them in their, in their sighs and, and in the way people respond. You know how people respond to music. And just the response of our church to the name of Jesus being praised. And I just sat there. I was like, God, thank you that I could pastor a church where people love to praise Jesus. I was just like, thank you, God. Thank you for this opportunity and this privilege. And I pray that if I come back in 10 years to see you again, I pray that this church will still be crazy about Jesus. I I pray that this will still be a temple of praise to Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll still be a people who are really concerned about the name of Jesus being proclaimed to your neighbors and, and to other people across the world, that you'll still be a people who are concerned that the name of Jesus would be lifted up higher. I don't know who your next senior pastor is going to be. But make sure you hire someone who's crazy about Jesus. Not just believes in Jesus, but it's like all about the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Redeemer is worth it. And all through eternity, we will be glorifying and exalting and savoring in our Redeemer. So our redemption results in praise for the Redeemer. Number two, redemption results in outsiders becoming insiders. This one's crazy. Look at verse 11. Look what they say about uh, uh, Ruth. Verse 11, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, and who together built up the house of Israel. So Rachel and Leah were the two mothers of Jacob, the two wives of Jacob, through whom all the 12 tribes of Israel were born. So between them, they, they had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's amazing, isn't it? So, so think what they're saying here. May this pagan, Moabite, Gentile outsider become like the mothers of Israel. May she become a founding mama of a great dynasty among the Israelites. I mean, that's crazy. From that far out to that high up and in, he says, may this happen. But that's what happens in redemption. People who are really, really, really far away that you would be like, they're never going to make it, suddenly become heads of families inside the people of God. Or the same thing in verse 12, through the offspring uh, the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so this was the particular clan within their tribe. And again, may she be a founding mother. But that's what God does when He redeems people. He takes outside, far away, unclean, undeserving, unworthy people, and He makes them His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. 
And so that we are now the sons and daughters of God. It's just an amazing thing. You know, there's nobody here today. I don't know, I don't know some of you folks I don't know. Maybe some of you are like one of those roof cave-in people. That's what I call you. They're the people who say, well, I don't know if I'm going to walk in this church. The roof may cave in on me, right? I've, actually, I've literally heard people say that many times over the years. And I'm like, no, that's who Jesus came to save. Roof cave-in people. You know, people who think they don't, they don't belong. It's like Christ came to save people like you. And we're all people like that, to be honest. And no matter who you are, no matter how far away you are, no matter what hang-ups and past and baggage and brokenness you have, Jesus Christ can redeem you and take you from being an outsider to making you one of the beloved children of God. If you'll just put your faith in Christ. And even for those of us who do cling to Christ, I guess I would ask you and I'd ask myself, how much has this truth sunk in that we really do uh, have the status of being the sons and daughters of God. Has it really sunk in for you? Like, who are you? You know, how, how do you think about yourself? And I think so many times we think about ourselves besides being the children of God. We, we think of ourselves as, well, I'm old, or I'm young, or, you know, I'm single, or I'm married, or, you know, we think I'm, you know, I'm poor, or I'm rich, or I'm a loser, or I've got it all together. You know, we have all these self-perception things, right? Um, sometimes we identify ourselves by our addictions, in different ways, but if you're a Christian, you are fundamentally a child of God. This is who you are. This is who you've become in Christ. Not because of your natural orientation or inclination. It's what Christ has done. You know, I know there's high school students here, junior high students here. This is something that we all wrestle with in junior high and high school, like identity, who we are. And, we've, and all of us adults have gone through that. Some of us adults still haven't figured it out. You know, but but, you know, you wrestle with that. Like, am I a geek? Am I cool? Am I pretty? Does anyone like me? Am I a loser? Am I worth anything? And as Christians, man, you are a son and daughter of God purchased by the Son of God. That's your baseline, which is kind of everything. And so whatever else you put on top kind of really doesn't matter because you're a child of God. And, and may we as a church not only understand what God has done for us by taking outsiders and making them insiders in Christ. But let's treat each other that way as we relate to each other in the church. May we always treat each other with honor and dignity and respect. Even like when we're having difficulties with each other and there's like real hurts and real, real disagreements, we still need to be like, you know, end of the day, yeah, okay, so this person to me, we're having a big problem, but end of the day, this is a blood-bought child of God that I'm talking to. And so I I pray that our church would have an atmosphere, not only of constant praise to Jesus, but an atmosphere of, of dignity and care and deference to one another as we recognize that we're each the blood-bought children of God. So redemption results in praise for the Redeemer. Number two, it results in outsiders becoming insiders in remarkable ways. Number three, redemption results in the dead coming back to life. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth home, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. So apparently she couldn't conceive before. Um, you know, she wasn't able to have children with her former husband. So the Lord has done something. There's, there's new life in her womb. Life is coming. She gave birth to a son. Now get this, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, 
Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now, who's the kinsman redeemer they're talking about? It's actually the baby, right? Keep reading. He will renew your life, new life. This this new kinsman redeemer is going to renew your life. He'll sustain you in your old age. So when you're really old and you can't really do anything, you're going to have this kid who's been born who's going to take care of you. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given him birth. So the him, the redeemer, is the baby. So Naomi took the child and laid her in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. So, so this child is the child of Ruth and Boaz, but he's, he's also being kind of reckoned or imputed or considered legally to be the descendant of Elimelech. He's, he's a substitute child. He's a, he's a proxy child who's now going to carry on the lineage of Elimelech and take care of Naomi. And so it's so cool, you know, at the beginning, you guys remember chapter one where, uh, where Ruth's like, oh, no, Naomi, I'm going to go with you. And Naomi's like, no, that's dumb. Don't come with me. And Ruth's like, no, I'm coming. And Naomi's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to have a kid? Am I going to have another kid? And you're going to marry that kid someday? It's so cool. At the end of the book, it's like, no, actually, Naomi, Ruth's going to have a kid. And her kid's going to take care of you. It's just a great little wonderful irony at the end of the story. And so there's new life. There's new life. A new baby is born. Ruth is going to be renewed in her old age. The dead name of Elimelech will live on. When Christ redeems us, when redemption happens, things that were dead and lost and gone come back to life. The Bible tells us that those who are in Christ are born again. The Bible tells us that those who are in Christ are raised to new life. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. So to be a Christian is not just to believe certain things or go to church on a certain day. To be a Christian is to have a new life. And I just so encourage you, I just want you to know today that that you could have a new life in Christ. You, You could be changed from the inside out. Your heart can be changed. Your mind can be changed. I just want to encourage you Christians who are here. There's a new life inside of you. And sometimes you know that the old life you know, fights against the new life and we wrestle. And sometimes a lot, of us, a lot of us have come to Christ and we still have a lot of baggage. A lot of us have come to Jesus and we're, we're kind of a past. We're kind of banged up, you know. We've been through a lot and all that old junk just keeps coming into our new life in Christ. And sometimes you're discouraged and you want to give up. Don't give up. The new life in you will win out. There's a new thing in you. Don't listen to the devil when he's like, ah, you're a failure. No, I'm a child of God. My redemption price has been paid. There's a new life in me. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, messing around with the old life, but I need to stop. But there's a new life. Christ is in me. That's wonderful. Praise for the Redeemer, number one. Number two, the outsiders become insiders. Number three, the dead come back to life. And then number four, here's the fourth thing that happens. And this is like the the surprise twist at the end of the book. A new king is born. Verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, King David. And then you get the whole genealogy at the end. This then is the family line of Perez. 
which would be like the clan from which this, these people come from. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So at the end of the book, you know, it's like this whole book, if you think of like a graph, it starts off really bad. And then, you know, it picks up and it picks up and it gets better and better. And then like a baby's born. And then you suddenly get to this genealogy at the end and it's like, it goes like this. You know, just what just happened? Wait a minute. This baby is going to be the, the one from whom the greatest king of Israel comes? The man after God's own heart? David? You know, man, those people, when they said, boy, we hope Ruth becomes a great mother. They had no idea. She has, she's becoming the mother of a dynasty, the greatest king in all of Israel who's coming. And so in some ways, I think that's the, the whole purpose of the book of Ruth. You, you know, why, why does Ruth exist in our Bibles? Why, why did it get written back then? I think one of the reasons it was written was to, to validate and give credibility to David, to show that King David wasn't just an ordinary king, but that God was doing some amazing things along the way to bring David into existence. This is God's man. What an amazing son. And to think that the story didn't end there, right? Because from David came the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to look at one more verse real quick, and then I'm done. Turn to Matthew... Chapter 1, page 955, Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 is the other Christmas story. So you you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, you know you're doing like read through the Bible in a year or something, and you get to Matthew chapter 1, you're like, oh man genealogies. I I'm, if I skip this, does that still count for reading the Bible through in a year? Like I acknowledge it's there, but I can't, how do I get anything spiritual out of this? I'll start at verse 18 where it talks about the birth of Jesus. Okay. Well, well maybe I'll go back to verse 16 where it says Jesus was born. Okay, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. That's the main point, right? Jesus was born and he has a genealogy before that. Great, right? Not so fast. Verse 3. Does this sound familiar? Judah, the father of Perez, and Tezra, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Does this sound familiar? Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, the pagan Gentile, makes it into the genealogy of Christ. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And then from David all the way down to Jesus. Amazing. So, so in other words, a thousand years after the story of Ruth, there was another woman in Bethlehem who gave birth to another son. 
who would become the new king and the true king and the greatest of all Davids, Jesus Christ. So, so, that, so that what happened in the story of Ruth is part of the historic... This is not like a superhero movie. and They're great, but you know, they're fake, right? You can't fly. You can't shoot fire out of your eyes or whatever. But Ruth really happened. And it's part of the actual historical record that brought us to Jesus. And Jesus really lived and died again. Not a movie, but history. And we are saved today and have hope of eternal life because what Christ did on the cross. So, tie it all together, the story of Ruth, if you're a Christian, the story of Ruth is part of the history of how you got saved. Because of Ruth and because of Boaz, so Jesus and because of Jesus, well, everything. And it's through all of that that we've become part of this story. And so I think Ruth... It's a fantastic Christmas story because it's the history and the roots of all that God has done. God's working to save us didn't just start on Christmas Day. It goes way, way, way back. That's how long God has been planning to save you all the way back and even further. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise You this morning as our kinsman redeemer. We confess that we have no hope of saving ourselves or of righting ourselves or of rehabilitating ourselves. Only You, Jesus Christ, paid the debt once and for all upon the cross. You are our kinsman redeemer. And and we come under the shadow of your wings. We come under the shadow of your cross. And we cling to you alone as our Savior. The world has had many great philosophers and teachers, but you alone, Jesus, were the kinsman redeemer who actually did something. The only one who could do something to save us. Oh God, may we be filled up with praise. Lord, I pray that this church would always be a temple of praise to Christ. I pray that when we gather here every Sunday for years to come, the name of Jesus would be lifted high in this church. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that outsiders have become insiders. And I pray, God, that maybe there's a few more outsiders here today like we all were. Lord, would you bring them in? Would you bring the sheep into the fold for whom you died? Oh, Father, I do pray that you would uh, help us to keep growing in our new birth and help us to be amazed at all you've done to save us. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Ruth, which is not just history, but it's part of our own stories. Oh, Lord, we praise you. Praise your name this morning. In Christ's name, amen.